Good morning. Okay, so uh, my prayer for you is that you've had your coffee, because we're in for quite a ride today. Um, I am, I'm going to go a bit of a pace, uh, so just do your best to keep up, and we're going to get there together. Um, all right, so uh, last week, Paul mentioned this, this picture, a puzzle, and any guesses what this puzzle, the picture is? Yeah, we have no idea. <laughs> so that's the problem when we try and actually come to, it could be a sunset, um, but I have no idea what that is because I don't have the picture on the box. And that can often be how when we try and read the Bible, uh, we have no idea when we're looking at this little chapter, this puzzle piece, uh, where does this fit in the whole? I don't know how to construct this all together. Uh, it's like assembling a jigsaw without being able to see the picture on the box. So. You know, we end up asking, how does this piece fit in? This story, this chapter, uh, how, even this book, how does this fit in with a big picture? And I, I suppose this is probably a bit easier uh, for some of us with the New Testament. It's a bit more clear when things uh, happen there. But the Old Testament is kind of, you know, the gloves come off. It, it gets a little bit more difficult. And there's some weird-looking jigsaw pieces in there if you, if you are reading through it, uh, especially if we're doing it as a church. If you're going through some of this stuff for the first time, some strange stuff in there. You know, you've got a lot of laws about cleaning and uh, foods to eat. And uh, uh, if you're going to indulge me for a moment, uh, there's, there's this law that's in there three times. I think it's the most repeated law. Um, and it is, here we go. Do not cook a baby goat in its mother's milk. Kind of weird, right? Kind of weird. So, uh, in fact, if you look at Jewish kosher, custom today, their food laws, a lot of their kosher laws are developed out of this principle, because this is mentioned three times, so it's a big deal. Um, you can't actually, because of this, you can't have a cheeseburger, because it's dairy and meat in the same thing. Strange, right? You know, no, it's just, I think maybe the principle there is uh, that there's something wrong about cooking something in the life of its mother. I, I'm not sure. but. They've developed that, this custom out of it. Um, but there's actually a very interesting thing that happened in the late 1800s. They discovered in this excavation of a Canaanite city, uh, this, this other culture that was neighboring Israel at the time. And they, they, they dug up the city, they discovered a temple, and they discovered this library, and it's you know huge find. Um, and they discovered all these texts, and they, they were kind of like the, the priestly manual for the, the Canaanite priests, and, and they discovered in there this one line that was, it says, this one ritual mentioning boiling animals in the milk of their mothers. And so there's an example of perhaps the, the meaning of this law in the Old Testament was completely lost to history, because one of the purposes of the law was to make it Israel different from their neighbors. And, and the law, the principle behind that law might be, don't look like these guys because they use this to worship their Canaanite gods and you're not supposed to be like them. Set them up, be set apart from the nations. So anyway, that's one law for free. So we got, we got laws um, with their stuff about building temple designs, and then there's you know a few wars that make me feel a bit uncomfortable, and then there's a lot of weird uh, books that I, I 
kind of read it and I'm like, okay, I, I, I probably not, but it seems like when I read this, these guys were on some type of hallucinogens. So anyway, if, you, if, you, if you're reading through it and you're like me with those prophetic books especially, it's just like, where, where am I? What, what is going on? I have no idea how this relates to the story. Uh, and so it can be so helpful at least to have a, a grasp of uh, the big picture to know how to assemble this big jigsaw piece, so um, this jigsaw puzzle. So it's always worth starting with the corner pieces, the edge pieces. You know, that's how we build the puzzle. We have uh, at the beginning of the Bible, in the beginning. And anyone know the final word of the Bible? Uh, yep, that's right. Amen. And so we have these, um, that's the kind of the overview, in the beginning and amen. And so we, there's typically uh, a way that a lot of kind of modern churches um, s slice up the Bible. You have creation at the beginning, uh, and then you have a, a fall, um, and then you know we, we skip right over all the way to Jesus and c redemption because we fell, so He redeems us. Um, and then at the final, at the end of time, uh, God comes and restores all things, and that's that's the kind of the four-part way of dividing up the Bible. And you get a nice story arc from that, but it's a big problem. What, what, what the heck do we do with that part in the middle there? It's quite, I mean, if you look at the Bible, I mean, New Testament, I'm still in the Old Testament there. Yeah, it's about that much, you know? It's a, it's a fairly substantial part um, that we've got to deal with right there. Um, so today we're going to look at the rest of the Old Testament in the big story of God and take a look at this big picture. So uh, don't tune out here. First... We're going to do some maths. Very exciting. Okay, so did you know in the Bible there are 807,000 words? Fun fact. Did, uh, so 622 of those, 1,000, are in the Old Testament, and 184 are in the New. Pretty cool to know that, right? So uh, if you take the last two weeks, we did uh, roughly 6,700 words. Cool. Uh, and, and that took us roughly... Uh, about 70 minutes. So about 97 words a minute, that was our pace. That's, that's double the average typing speed, so we're going pretty fast here. We're actually well above double. And so um, what do we have left? Okay, Genesis 12 to Malachi, how many words is that? Well, we can just work that out there. About 616,000, almost. And, uh, and we take that and we divide it by our 97 words per minute pace, and that gives us about four days and 10 hours to do today's message in. So there, will, there won't be any loo breaks and we've locked the doors, so we're gonna get started. Okay, first things first, we're gonna do a quick quiz. And uh, if you look at the end of one of your rows that ooh, almost fell off, there are some pieces of paper. Now, you're gonna have to flip them over because the answers are on the back and I don't want you cheating. So you look, turn to the side that says Bible quiz. Now you're gonna get in groups of four or five and four or five, pick, pick out your, your smartest people around you now, um, and, and there will be prizes, otherwise this would just be school. So my, my dad's gonna help administer the prizes with probably someone else. Um, so I'm gonna, here's what I'm quizzing you on. We're gonna, we're gonna try and put the main acts of the Bible in the correct, uh, the, the, the main sections of the Bible in the right, in the right order. So this is basically what it looks like. So, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we got introduced to this five-act structure of the Bible, um, and here are, the, here are the nine different parts. So I'm just going to give you uh, a few moments. Um, I didn't give you pens. I'm so sorry. 
yeah, Joe's going to grab some pens. There are nine points at play. It gives you an extra thinking time here. You know, what, what comes first? What comes last? Uh, how do I structure these little bits in the middle? It's nine points at play, getting them in the correct order. Remember, there are prizes. They're not very big, but you know, if you like chocolate, that's good. All right, start writing down your answers now. Just gonna have to take a shot, shot in the dark. Okay, you, you ready? Paul's team's ready. Paul and Casey's team. Oof. Excellent, excellent. Okay, I'm going to give you about 30 more seconds. Okay, that's it. Okay, I hope you've written your answers down because we're gonna go for it, okay? So score, you're gonna score yourself out of nine for this and we're gonna, we're gonna go through them now. The first one uh, might not be a surprise, creation. Is, it starts off with creation and, and the final one uh, is future hope. Um, so uh, I, I would forgive you if you put future hope at the end of the Old Testament too, so I mean that's also I think half a point for that, but mm, there we are. Um, so then we have the patriarchs moving on through, left to right. Um, then we have Exodus in the promised land. Then, here we have it. Is it going on? Israel's kingdom comes after the promised land. Then they go into exile, and then they return from exile. And then we jump into the New Testament, and we have Jesus, and then follows that the early church. All right, score yourself out of nine for that one. There is another round. So next, we're going to put Bible characters um, into the right sections. Okay, the six, six, six groups here, and you can just write the, the first name just to keep it easy. So here, here are the characters coming up. Any moment now. There we are. Um, so put them in the correct section. One of them should be an instant win. It's 
So if you just want to write the first name, that'll make it easier. All right, we're going to take another 20 seconds, and then we're moving on. Yeah, yeah, no cheating at the front. Okay, right, here we go. So, uh, six points at play here, they've got to be in the correct section. So, first off, it begins with Adam and Eve. All right, then we have Abraham under the patriarchs, pa patriots, uh, patriarchs, there we are, that's that word. Uh, and then we have Moses in Exodus, and then from there, we have Saul, David, and Solomon in Israel's kingdom. Those were the kings. Uh, and then we, we exile and return from exile. We've got nothing in them. Now, this was the easy one. I hope you got this one. Jesus goes in Jesus. Yes. Uh, and then we have Peter and Paul. And that's it. Those are the six, six sections. So, okay, six points for that one. Add up all your points. Um, if you scored 15... You get a chocolate. So my, put, put your hand up, and my dad is going to go around. Uh, can someone help my dad as well? Would, uh, would someone help my dad and hand out some chocolates? Um, I mean, I suppose if you didn't score full marks, you could probably take a bounty, because that's kind of like a punishment. So um, Now, I don't want you to worry here if you didn't get full marks, because as we're going to see in the Bible, these people are so far from perfect. They're very, 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 very far from perfect. They do not score full marks, any of them. So you're in very good company if you didn't score full marks. Now, if you got full marks, you've got a chocolate, so there. All right, so I still need your help. Um, we're going we're gonna to get into uh, the type of story we're reading. I'm going to make three points about the type of story we're reading. Um, so shout out, any guesses what movie... This is. Yes, Romeo and Juliet. Okay, and this TV show? Okay, maybe you've got a friend who's seen that. I'm sure none of us in here have seen that. Um, anyway, moving on. And last one. Oh, I heard it. Yep, Hamlets. Fantastic. And now, any guesses what these three have in common? Yes, tragedy. They are all tragedies. And that's the first point about the, uh, the Bible. See, the Old Testament is a tragedy, at least when it comes to the story of Israel. Now, one of the big problems that we have when we read the Bible sometimes is we see it as a behavior manual of how to be a godly person. And we look at these people and we're like, okay, these are good examples of how to, uh, how to become good people. Uh, and 
But as soon as we start to read through the story, we get actually a little bit uncomfortable because these people are very messed up. They are entirely dysfunctional. And I suppose if you grew up in Sunday school, you might have actually had a very sanitized version of some of these characters. So you kind of you've got Happy Noah or Happy Gideon. And Gideon, um, wow. He has some troubling moments. Uh, there's one moment where he says that he wants to scrape the flesh off his enemies with a thorn branch. <laughs> that didn't make it into Veggie Tales, did it? <laughs> so we recently covered the Bible at my life group, uh, and we were doing Bible characters. Uh, and it was really fun to do, but one of the common themes that we didn't anticipate was time after time after time, we would look at these incredible characters of faith, but we would just feel so encouraged because... They didn't get things right. So much of the time, they didn't get things right. And so it was still amazing to see how God used them. Uh, and God, you know, God will use these people who I don't think deserve to be used. You know, we look at them and it's like, man, there's some horrible things that, that, that go on. And I don't think they, need to, uh, they deserve it. But the encouragement there is he's, he's going to use you and he's going to use me where we don't measure up. So I, I just want to make this point that Israel, these, these people of God chosen for this mission, they fail it. They fail it. And it's got more in common, common with Breaking Bad and Hamlet than a story where our heroes triumph, like Toy Story or Star Wars. So the next thing we want to remember about the Bible is it is an epic narrative. Now, I've chosen Lord of the Rings here because that is three volumes and it is, spans languages and histories and cultures. And it, it has a massive overarching story. And there's lots and lots and lots of little subplots that talk, that speak to the main story. And the Bible is similar, except it's grounded in our history, in, in the world's history. And you just see there's an epic narrative going on it covers the universe and everything in it. It speaks to all humanity at all times. It's the definition of the epic narrative. But the problem is we can get lost in it with the genealogies or when we're just done when we get read some genealogies or we read Leviticus and it's just like Leviticus lays waste to everyone. It's just over. So in a moment, we're going to summarize the storyline of the Old Testament and everything leading up to Jesus. And that's a good way to think about it, which is my final point which is the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. And we've said that a few times over this series because history finds its answer in the person of Jesus and the Bible too. So, and Jesus saw those big stories pointing to himself. This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. That's in Luke 24. That's after his resurrection. He just explains how all these things lead to him. So this is where we're at. The whole series of where we're going. Next week, we've got Jesus in the church. Uh, and then we're going to do a couple of weeks uh, on Act 5. Now, I'm not just going to cover Act 3 today because I really care about you. I'm going to do Act 1 and 2 
thrown in for free as well, because it all falls apart if I don't. <laughs> so let's begin. Uh, in the beginning, God creates a good world of beauty and order, and he creates humans out of dirt and divine breath. And if you, if you want to follow along in, on your notes, that's, uh, that's, uh, you flip it over from the Bible quiz, it's, it's all there if you want to keep up. In the image of God, male and female, Genesis 1.27. And male and female together, it's very interesting that the image of God is male and female because it tells you something that the image of God at its center has relationship. You ever thought about that? It's a complementary diversity and you find unity in it through love. Pretty cool. And then if you think about it also, because we are his images, we're made in his image, we're also the clearest picture of what God looks like is another person. And God wants to rule the world through mankind. And he says, be fruitful and multiply, extend his beauty and order, the thing he created, just extend it, be like him. Although the world was very good, it wasn't perfect. There was still chaos going on and it needed governance. So he put mankind in charge to extend the borders of his goodness. So then, as Nigel pointed out uh, two weeks ago, he also put this tree in the garden, this, this tree that gives the wisdom to discern good from evil. It was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, don't eat this or you'll die if you do. So there was the choice. And a serpent comes along to tempt mankind. And in Genesis 3, 6, we read, when the woman saw the fruit and was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Interesting, I hadn't seen this until recently. It was a desire to gain wisdom. So because of this rebellion, they're exiled into the wilderness. And it's very interesting, actually, at this point, because Paul last week spoke about the fall and shame. And I just noticed while I was preparing this talk that the first animal sacrifice in the Bible, which becomes this quite important picture, happens at this point because God takes an animal skin and covers their nakedness. It's very interesting, this picture of this, this animal dies to create a skin to cover over their shame. It becomes this very important picture. So, what happens from there? Well, nothing good. Um, so, there's, this is just the spiral that goes down. And um, so, we see uh, there's, there's Cain and Abel. Uh, one brother murders the other. Um, then we have Lamech, and, he, and he's even worse. He's, he's uh, singing songs about murdering people now. And then after that, there's also Noah and the flood. And uh, very. Uh, the interesting thing about Noah and the flood is the first thing that happens after the flood, you know, it's like this story where God's like, okay, we're going to start again. And the first thing God says to Noah is be fruitful and multiply, which is the first thing he says to Adam and Eve. So it's this recreation story again. But the, the next thing that Noah does in the story is he builds a vineyard and he gets drunk. And so you see nothing has changed. Um, and which leads us all to this this picture of Babylon. Now, you may have read this in your Bible and go, no, wait, it's the Tower of Babel, but Babel and Babylon are just Greek and Hebrew. It's the same place. It's a very important picture. And so um, Babylon is this tower 
that they build. And it's where they, they take their technology, this brand new technology called the brick, and they, they're like, you know what? We're going to build to the heavens. We are going to assert our authority over gods. Uh, and and it's, it becomes the symbol of defining evil as good on our own terms. So um, God does the same thing he does to Adam. He scatters them, and these all patterns repeat again. So what's the plot from the beginning? Here's the setup. God wants to rule the world through humans, but humans are the problem. So we need a new kind of human. And interestingly enough, when Adam and Eve eat the fruit, God curses the snake by saying, I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. The snake crusher is promised. And this, the snake is symbolic of evil. So how is this snake going to be crushed? Well, you just have to keep reading. So we turn now to Acts 3. Genesis 12, and this is where the story zooms in on one family. One family, Abraham. So the Lord appears to Abraham, or Abraham as he was called at the time, and he says, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And God calls him out of Babylon, out of his country, to the promised land. You're going to want to remember that. Continue. So it says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the people on earth will be blessed through you. Now, if you were to pick a key word from this whole passage, what would you say it is? Blessing. Bless. Blessing. It, it, through sheer repetition, and this is the key verse, all the people on earth will be blessed through you. God has a plan to bless the whole world through this one family. So we go from there, and uh, there's a long struggle, but a hundred years old, uh, Abraham has his first, uh, has his son, Isaac, um, this is the promised son, and uh, then uh, Isaac has Jacob, and, and Jacob's quite significant because he gets also a, a name change, uh, and he's renamed to Israel. And so really, this is where Acts 3 is not, it's not about Abraham's uh, story. Oh, he also has 12 sons. <laughs> but um, it's Israel. Acts 3 is about Israel, um, and that's where it comes from. And he has 12 sons, and they become the 12 tribes. And one of those sons is called Joseph. And he's sold into slavery by his brothers because uh, they don't like him. Um, and, and he ends up down in Egypt, and through a, a, quite a struggle, somehow God favors him and takes him out of this horrible situation and gives him this place of influence. And he, uh, it says in the Bible, uh, he becomes like a god in the eyes of Pharaoh. The, the, the ruler of Egypt. And so there, he's in Egypt and a famine comes and because he's in this position, he saves the whole nation from famine and ruin and death. Uh, and the whole family of Israel moved to Egypt um, and, and they, it says, interestingly enough, they live in the best of the land, they multiply and prosper. It's fulfilling that promise from Genesis 1. 
So that generation passed away, and a new pharaoh comes to power who doesn't know anything about Joseph or their history, and he sees the Israelites and fears them because they're mighty in number, and he puts them into slavery, into bondage. And the more he oppresses them, the more they multiplied. Again, it's just Abraham's promise there because they're being oppressed, so they multiply. They can't help but be blessed. And they're there for 400 years. But none of this should surprise us because... Abraham, the prophet, he was told this by God. Genesis 15, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. And afterwards they will come out with great possessions. And so Israel, while in the slavery, they, they cry out for deliverance. And God answers that prayer with this, with Moses. And there's the 10 plagues. You uh, might have seen, heard about that, 10 plagues. Um, then he leads them across the Red Sea in a great deliverance. And they're out of Egypt, finally, and he's taking them to that promised land that, that God spoke to Abraham about. Going to make you a great nation. Going to give you a land, this promised land. Um, but they make a pit stop at Mount Sinai, and they're going to meet with God. And this is where the Lord invites them into a deeper relationship with him. Um, so... Exodus 19, now this is what the Lord says to them. Now if you obey me and fully keep, uh, obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now priests, the simple definition of one is they reveal God to people. They're going to show the nations what God is truly like. It's developing this promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12. This is how they're going to start blessing the world. They're going to show, they're going to be a different kind of people. They're going to show the world what God is like. And so God makes this thing called a covenant with them. And it's just a, it's like an agreement with lots of different terms um, of how to obey it and how to look different. And the Lord first gives them the Ten Commandments to live by. And that's the start of uh, the first five books of the Bible. They're called the Torah. The five books, they're also called the Pentateuch, but the Torah was the one I'm going with. And in them, there are 613 laws total. Which is a lot. It's a lot of laws. But even that is only a subsection of the laws that were given to Israel. Because there's, there's only, that's what scholars think. There, there are only actually two given, two given on divorce, which is a pretty integral part of life for a lot of people. So, and it's interesting how they're given. They're given at different points through the books to underscore the story. So, it is first worth looking at these first five books, not as a law book, even though the Torah translates to law. It's a story with laws given at strategic points to underscore the story. And it's by following these laws, they would become new types of humans to show the nations what God is like. I mean, Isaiah 49 picks up this prophet. He picks up on this promise and he says, I will make you a light for the Gentiles so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So let's look at how Israel did. So uh, back to Mount Sinai. Just given the Ten Commandments, uh, Moses um, 
Moses gives them, and he's, he, God's invited them to become his treasured possession. And he says, come up this mountain and meet with me. And uh, you know, this is a bigger deal than tea with the queen. You've just been invited to meet with the Lord Almighty on a mountain. But at the mountain, God is being very intense. There's smoke, and there's lightning, and there's thunder, and uh, God is saying, prepare yourself. Get ready to meet me. And he's like, if you don't prepare yourself properly, you're going to die. So take this seriously. Yet at the core of it, he is inviting them into a deeper relationship. And yet all this intensity, it was a test. Because the Israelites end up saying to Moses, you know what? We're good with the rules. But no thank you to meeting together. Moses, you go do that. Exodus 20, when the people saw the thunder and lightning, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. And they essentially refuse to have that relationship and they backed away. And I wonder what things would look like if they'd said yes. So Moses goes up the mountain alone and while he's on the mountain, he uh, gets interrupted by God and says, uh, go back down because the people uh, you're leading, they've just broken the first two commandments because they built this golden calf. <laughs> it's just like ridiculous. So they've just been given these laws and, and showing how to be a different kind of people. And they're like, no, oh, well, I guess we want to do this and worship golden calf instead. So because of this rebellion and many others that follow, a journey that should have taken them two weeks to the promised land that's where they're heading, remember. It takes them 40 years. 40 years. And this pattern emerges along the way. Israel are given laws, and they don't obey them. They're given more laws, and they still don't obey them. And they're given more laws, and you get it. Moses says at the end, in the book of Deuteronomy, his final speech, so in the 40 years, the previous generation have died away. So you're speaking to a new generation, a fresh, fresh generation ready to seize the promises of God that are qualified to enter in to the promised land. And what does, what does he say to, to them in his final speech? He says, you won't obey the laws. Your hearts are hard. You need God to change your hearts. And he dies right outside the promised land because he too had disobeyed God. You're starting to feel the weight of the tragedy of this story. He's described as the most humble man on earth and he too didn't make it. So they're finally here, led by Joshua, Moses' successor. And he's described as a new Moses. So again, there's a promise of hope. And they take over the land and it's very successful for a time. Um, and the reason why they're taking over this land I'm not just going to go into kind of some of the ethics of the Old Testament warfare and all of that. Um, but the reason, principal reason is these people were horrible, horrible people. They had child sacrifice and horrible sexual practices. And God was like, I am not tolerating that in the land. Um, and so this is the kind of the moral imperative. Um, so what happens is when they take over the land, the people have... They sin, and then God removes the protection from them. And so they're oppressed by their neighbors. And then they repent because they don't like being oppressed, and they like God's protection. So they cry out, and God gives them a deliverer. And that leads us to the judges, because God raises up judges 
to save them, and then there's a time of peace. And so with the judges, they, they start out good, just like all these things start out good. But as you read through the book of Judges, you just start seeing that things get bad and then worse, and it all just leads to Israel's total failure. The judges themselves become corrupt. And there's this key line that gets repeated four times at the closing of this book. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They defined good and evil on their own terms. It's Genesis 3 again. See, Israel needed faithful, wise leaders, but they hadn't changed. So the people cry out to God, we want a king. Sounds like a good thing, but this was their reason. We want a king like the other nations. So God does give them a king. And it's Saul, which is, I guess, the best choice they had at the time. Um, but he, and he succeeds for a time, but again, his insecurity gives way to pride. And pride leads to a downfall. And so God finds David in the field. And he's, he's God's chosen king, a humble king. And he replaces Saul with David and Israel, through his leadership, become a unified kingdom. They take from these tribes and they become a unified nation under one king. And he turns Israel to God. And he, he says to God, after all of this, once when they've captured this, all this land and they've become this kingdom, I want to build you a house. And God does something remarkable and says, you know what? You don't build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. 2 Samuel 7, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. This is, again, another promise, another prophetic promise. So from there, his son takes over and he's very, very successful for a time. But with all the success, he starts to look more like Pharaoh than his father before him. He starts to exhibit, has all these wives, and he has all this money, and he has built this like, luxurious palace, and he, he gets horses from Egypt, and the Bible's very clear on this if you look at the language. He starts to look more like Pharaoh than his father. But the promise is fulfilled that Israel's descendants truly become as numerous as the stars. But because of Solomon, in the next generation, the kingdom splits in two, and they become divided. You have the northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom. Northern kingdom and southern kingdom. Divided kingdom. Uh, so let's have a look at how they did. Northern kingdom versus southern kingdom. So we're going to play a little game of uh, good king, bad king. Um, and there are three criteria for being a good king. Uh, you, you worship God alone. Uh, you, you rid Israel of their idolatry, the, the thing that they took over the land to begin with, why they were there, um, and you're faithful to the covenant. And so how did they do? Well, Israel, um, they didn't score so well. Uh, big old zero for 20, uh, 20 bad kings. Um, and Judah, they did somewhat better. They had eight, eight good kings and 12 bad kings. And the whole time while this is going on, the prophets, which is a third of the Old Testament, they are speaking into this story. And you've got you know, prophets in the north, and you've got 
um, you know, because they, they actually are speaking and saying, look, guys, you're about to walk off a cliff's edge. Please, please turn back to God. Obey the covenant because this is why God gave you this land. But none of the kings listen to it and they, none of the kings do it. And so what happens is they're cut off from the promise and they're exiled to Assyria. It's a real tragedy here. Now, southern kingdom, Judah, because they did, some of the kings listened to them. Um, God remembers the promise. And even though some of the bad kings, they set up Israel for failure, they are exiled. But God goes with them. So exile to Babylon is going back to square one. Remember? Where did Abraham come from? Babylon. It's going right back to square one. And so because God's with them, they cry out. And God gives them new uh, prophets that, that promise Babylon falls and um, they, they return from exile, but it's smaller and weaker. And this is uh, some of the prophetic books that happen after exile. So that's the story. God creates a good world. Mankind is tempted by a serpent and desiring wisdom. They disobey God and choose to rebel. It spirals out of control quickly, leading to a whole civilization, Babylon, that defined evil as good. Yet God calls Abraham out of Babylon and promises to give him a land with a, and give him, make him a great nation. Through him, all the world will be blessed. So Moses and Joshua lead Israel out of slavery from Egypt to the promised land. And Israel build a kingdom and at times have powerful moments of faithfulness. Yet Israel ultimately fail God, and despite all the warnings of the prophets, they are exiled back to Babylon. But God does not forget them. He brings back a remnant from exile to start again, smaller, weaker, but in their own land again. And that's how it ends. It's like a case study in human nature to rebel against laws because their hearts were hard. But that is not the whole of it. Because unless you've discovered the promise of hope that's being underscored through this, you haven't seen the story. And that's what many of the prophets spoke of that I haven't told you about. A future hope. So Moses, in his final speech, says to Israel that they would fail God. They wouldn't make it. Because they had hard hearts. He said they needed new hearts. To, they needed a new spirit. And the prophets develop this. They say that we need a new heart and a new spirit. But the prophets also develop a promise about a Messiah who will destroy evil and fulfill God's promise to bless all the world through Abraham. So these are two main threads of promises that the prophets keep talking about. So we don't have time to do this, but they're on your sheet, so have a look through them. I mean, you just... It's just powerful. You know, I'll put their law in their minds and write it on their hearts. They will all know me. They will remember, I will remember their sins no more. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. You know, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. I, I have sworn to be angry with you, uh, to never be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. My unfailing love for you will be ne never be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed. And then with the promised Messiah, you know, these are all on your sheets, so I don't have time to go over them. But it all leads, at the close of the Old Testament, Israel are left waiting for a future hope. 
And these prophetic promises all point forward. So I wonder how all this story is going to resolve. Now, Tim Mackey, uh, who I got a lot of this material from, he says, the, the Torah is a story designed to show that Israel did not and could not keep God's law. Moses says that because the human condition is so broken and corrupted that we need to be transformed from the inside out by God's own life, he says circumcision of the heart. And so Jeremiah and Ezekiel pick that up and develop it and say, yeah, we need God's spirit. We need God's law written deep inside of us. And so it all points forward. But the Old Testament story itself never shows the realization of any of those hopes or promises. It's unresolved tension as you close the Old Testament. So I've run out of time, so I'm not going to do this. But this is on your sheet as well if you want to figure out. This is such a good question. In light of this tragedy, how is this book useful to us? How is it useful to us? So we're just going to skip through all that. Right to this, this promise. Israel had hard hearts. That was the diagnosis of the Old Testament, why they could never make it. But this is the promise for today, the, what the prophets spoke of. Israel couldn't enter their rest, enter God's rest. But Jesus opened the door for us too. And today is the day that that prophet spoke of because this is what's on offer. Sometimes it is so hard to love God and love others because we're stuck in our bitterness and our frustrations and the wounds of the, par the past. But the Spirit is come here to remove all of that, all the stuff that's weighing us down from loving people well and loving God. And he wants to breathe in us, just as he did in Adam and Eve, breathe in them to give us a new spirit and a new heart. So today, that's what we're going to do. We're going to make room for you. If you feel like, you know what? I feel like I'm not living up to this. You know what I need? I need that new spirit and I need that new heart. That is the promise on offer today.